The CMS Book Club is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about the Center for Medical Simulation and sign up for our simulation instructor training at www.harvardmedsim.org. challenged with the task of being the facilitator for Humble Inquiry, The Gentle Art of Asking Instead of Telling. The author is Edgar Schein, an illustrious professor emeritus from the Sloan School of Management at MIT. When I came upon this book, it was especially appealing to me. Should I introduce everybody who's here? Janice? Hello, everyone. Janice Palaganis here. Laura Rock. Hi, it's Laura Rock. Kian Jung Tong. Sasha Alexander Geisen, Paula Vidal, Grace Ng. Hi, everyone. And Mary Faye. Hi, everybody. Mary Faye here. First, I'll give a very general overview. The book is about the art of asking questions instead of telling. Edgar Schein had wondered about this particular question, how do you feel safe to bring up issues that need to be addressed? It goes right to the heart of organizations' behavior and issues related to patient safety and error reduction. And according to Edgar Schein, he says that asking a question to which you don't already know the answer, bolstered by the attitude of inquiry and curiosity, he defines as a humble inquiry. He has a much more drawn out definition, which is humble inquiry is the fine art of drawing someone out, of asking questions to which you don't already know the answer, of building a relationship based on curiosity and an interest in the other person. Basically, it's in six chapters. Uh, the first one, he covers the definitions, discusses humility and inquiry. Chapter two are case examples. Three, this is about forming this particular form of questioning, humble inquiry. Chapter four and five and six are related to uh, addressing challenges and inhibitors to humble inquiry. And then finally, suggestions for how to increase ability to engage in more humble inquiry. So I have a really great question, which is what in this book resonated with you the most strongly? I really enjoyed this book because I feel like it provided a, another layer of the why behind the work that we do. We talk a lot about advocacy inquiry and how inquiry paired with high standards, high regards, and our use of sharing perspectives and being clear on data can help people uncover their frames and promote positive behaviors. And we also talk a lot about how curiosity tends to be a good thing. But I really loved how his discussion of humility and how 
that our success and our accomplishing tasks requires an interdependence that really demands what he calls here and now humility, helps us even have a frame for why being curious and asking questions is a good thing. There's so much talk now about teamwork in hospitals and how do we do relational, organizational behavior type stuff. I think you can lecture and practice till the cows come home. But if you don't have humility, if people don't actually see every member of the team worth checking in with and worth having curiosity and interest in, then it's not going to work. What really spoke to me in this book is 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 his discussion of humility and how our having humility for every class of person and every role in our team is what's going to promote psychological safety through offering our own vulnerability. It's going to allow people to contribute in a more effective way. I would agree with that, Laura. That was one of the things that I just love. I love that you say humility. In my notes, I wrote vulnerability. For me, it it felt like I was reading things that I've been personally taught by CMS and all of you guys from working with all of you over the last decade. For the same reason, I guess I like watching all of you teach modules that we all teach because we say things a little differently and I learn, you know, new ways of explaining things. I thought that the overall value for me reading this book was that the prose was quite beautiful, the way he explains things, much more artful at least than the things I say. (laughs) I love the visuals that he gave. For me, chapter three was really important. I'd never looked at the taxonomy of inquiry. And then chapter six, where he talks about the forces inside us as inhibitors. We always talk about that, but he has graphs, like he has taxonomies for that as well. And that's just an interesting way of explaining it that that at least I'd like to adopt. I love the way that he talked about humility in particular as cultural, different cultural aspects of humility. And I so appreciate the fact that we have scholars from Chile, scholars from Singapore, and scholars from Belgium. And I'm wondering if QJ, if you've had some thoughts on this book. Well, for me, I just thought it's quite impressive that the CMS philosophy is reflected so much in this book, where you do not assume or be quick to judge the person you're interacting with, as well as the advocacy inquiry, uh, a little bit different from his humble inquiry, but the basis is the same. Um, With regards to the cultural differences in humility, certainly that is felt in the Asian uh, society. In Singapore, there is still this subservience deference towards rank as well as achievements, that's for sure. And the ability of Singaporeans in general to speak up, you can probably tell from my speaking, it's, it's not quite there to the level of the Americans and Europeans. And we have certainly a lot to learn in this regard. So as you asked about the, the cultural aspects, in Belgium it's rather special because we have two parts in the country. One part is more kind of a, a Germanic mind, and the south part is more Mediterranean. So my, my feeling about the humble inquiry is that this should be interesting to use it more on the clinical ground with the question we we make with patients. Because I have always been concerned about the the different timing in, in which we are living. The the physician is in the, the present and the past asking what has happened before. And the patient is in the future. What will happen with me? And I think that uh, having curiosity about what is really concerning for the patient and what does he cares about, what are his questions, are of paramount importance in, in medicine. And 
particularly in the emergency department where, where I used to work. You know, I think it's interesting that Sasha mentions culture, because I think that the part of the book that really stuck out to me was the discussion of using this sort of interaction in the culture. I think he was mostly talking about America that really values sort of accomplishment over relationships. And we've got this culture of telling, especially if we want to be perceived as an expert, we tell, we don't ask. You know, when I think about the elements of culture, it's language and norms and symbols, the primary way that we communicate culture to each other is through language. And so as I was reading that, I was thinking about the challenges of changing the way people relate to each other through language when you have a deeply held cultural belief like we do in America about individualism and knowing and telling and, you know, which just helps to explain why an approach like this is so different and so challenging but yet how important it is because it can help us because he goes on later on in the book to talk about, you know, the workplace of the future and the complexity of what we're trying to accomplish now requires us to have good relationships. And that's why changing the way we talk to each other is so important because if we're going to function in this highly complex way that we do, we have to build relationships first. And we don't get that through individualism and valuing telling. We get that through interaction. And a part of it is the just-in-time humility that he talks about. So so I was just really struck by how a, a way of speaking and relating to each other bumps up against some of the cultural values that we hold. That's great. Grace? Yes. Thank you, Roxanne. And I actually bought this book like three or four years ago and never got a chance to finish. You know, the current culture really is completely opposed to what Edgar Schein is saying in terms of being humble. And what comes to mind is it seems like a lot of what we do with our own trainees, with our nursing students, with our residents, is we're always trying to build the self-confidence and self-efficacy at least to me, we don't have any way to train them to be humble. And for me, I've never been trained to be humble. I was told that oh, humility is a virtual. Here, Edgar Shine is saying, well, here are some ways to do it. Why don't you start by asking instead of telling? Yeah, I find it fascinating because in the very beginning of the book, Edgar Shine talks about humility and inquiry as complex concepts. And the more you think about it, the more the more it is, you know, even describing what humility is, I'm not even sure I go along with his exact definition, but he writes, granting someone else a higher status than one claims for oneself. When I first read that, I was thinking that you were giving someone of higher status power to be so, but it's actually you granting them a higher status than you see yourself. And so, Grace, what you said just resonated about that whole concept of humility and being taught. And it's just assumed that one has natural abilities to be humble. Maybe it's beneficial to think back about how we could help people be more humble. Yeah, I'm really struck by the same theme that, you know, we work so hard in our courses to teach certain styles of speech that promote um, respect and curiosity. But he would argue that it's really about promoting the sense of, I need you to accomplish what we need for this. I need you. I don't, I'm not good enough on my own. And that 
if you have this stance of, I can't do this alone, that's how you can accomplish this type of humility and ask the right question. And it's so contradictory to the way we work in medicine. We promote this, like, I have the answer. I have certainty. I'm confident. I can do this on my own. And although we talk about teamwork and that's finally becoming a popular concept, we still celebrate like, oh, he got the answer really quickly or you know, she did this procedure without help or, you know, there's this culture that is going to be very hard to change. And I think until we really embrace celebrating uncertainty and this lack of confidence and this lack of credit for the things that we do, we can't really promote that type of humility. Something you said made me think about the importance of celebrating our accomplishments as a team. I think you're right. I think that we still are more inclined to celebrate individual accomplishments as opposed to getting the teammates together and and celebrating what we pulled off together. That's a paradigm shift, I think. I really was kind of annoyed with how he started the book. He tells a story about, I don't know if he was walking his dog or some woman was walking his dog, her dog, and gives him information on how mushrooms can be poisonous. And he, in my opinion, got very sensitive about the fact that she was giving him knowledge he already knew. And I just thought, oh, this is really funny, like humble inquiry. It's very unidirectional perspective because there's only so much control you have over a conversation. And maybe there should be a book on humble receiving. He should have been more humble and receiving what... Yeah, he was so pissed (laughs) off. It was like a really, I thought it was kind of a weird story. So I'm thinking of patience and, um, and I agree with you, Laura, like things have to change. And what I, what I did take away from the book was humble inquiries and attitude. It's not a method. It's not a tool. We teach methods and tools on how to achieve it, but really it's an attitude and debriefing, a culture and debriefing that we're trying to establish. Regarding the mushroom story, I took it differently. So I wasn't annoyed by it. But what what came to my mind right away was those situations in debriefing where an instructor is just so passionate about something and they just want to pound that information into someone's head. And, <laughs> and A, they're passionate. They feel like the pressure of time and that they're only going to have them for that period. I could see it from the learner's perspective, his attitude of like, well, why are you telling me all this? Why don't you engage me in conversation and make it more interactive and, and let me bring to the table some of my perspective and share with you some of my knowledge. So I took it in a different way. You know, one thing that I think could help us in medicine is like, instead of suppressing these negative feelings we have about insecurity is to exploit the, for example, imposter syndrome and how Mm -hmm. we all have imposter syndrome. And a lot of people I think would say they have imposter syndrome, including me. And instead of saying, let's suppress imposter syndrome and fake it and pretend we feel really good about everything we do, Instead, say, you know what? Maybe imposter syndrome is a good thing. Maybe self-doubt is a good thing. And it can help us share our insecurity and be more humble and model that humility instead of kind of pretending we have to fake confidence all the time. I'm thinking in contrast to the situations that you all have described, from my own experience, in the Asian context, the patients seem to prefer a doctor who is the one who is doing all the telling the one who is confident, the one who is very sure. And in a team perspective, very often you get patients asking me, what is my role? So I said, I'm the anesthetist. I'm going to put you to sleep for the operation. And then they'll, their interest will immediately drop off and they'll, <laughs> say, they'll ask, who's the surgeon? I want to speak to the surgeon. 
So in that regard, you know, you can you can see the contrast, whether be receiving or inquiring. Um, sometimes the humble inquiry doesn't really work here. <laughs> well, in Belgium, we have seen a change in the relationship between the physician and the patient. Uh, in the past, the relationship was very paternalistic. We used to make everything for them without asking them what they, if they agree. It was like this kind of relationship. But with the new generation, it doesn't work like that anymore because uh, they want to, to be acknowledged about everything. They already have Googled it. They already have seen on the web. And you, they want to, to be empowered in, in their treatment. So uh, there must be some kind of discussion. And for making this, that discussion of good quality, you have to be humble about what, what you know, because <laughs> now they, they, they are going to ask you. Yeah, I think that it is a driver for change, just the shift in people's attitude and people's self-advocacy, the availability of information that's much more readily at one's fingertips. And so it, it does force us as healthcare providers to be on our toes and, and to be humble because we don't know what they've read. And they may have some very valuable research that they've done on their own that is worth considering. But I think that for many days, physicians have been used some kind of dialect. The patient didn't understand anything of what we were saying. And for many physicians, it, it was, they used it to be kind of productive. But I think that it's not a good thing. I think the one thing that struck me from the book that also applies to communication with patients and uh, communication healthcare teams is how we short circuit our feelings. Um, and we really try to move straight into judgments and actions. And, and I feel like we do that a lot in all of our communications. Just to add to the, the discussion about, you know, telling versus asking within the healthcare context, and especially with what do patients want from us as providers, physicians, nurses, pharmacists, et cetera. I think they definitely, you know, they want telling, they want authority, they want confidence with regard to this is what I understand about your medical condition and these are the best available treatments that we know of. I think there's still room for asking. And one of the one of the really nice examples that Edgar Schein used was his wife going to an oncologist and the oncologist just asking them about an upcoming vacation. Patients want authority and they want telling, but I think where the inquiry fits in is the inquiry about them as a human being. This is your disease. This is a proposed treatment plan. Tell me how you see that affecting your life. So I, I think that there's room for both. And my dad was definitely one of those kind of guys who he did not want a doctor appearing at all uncertain. And we I actually took him to a surgeon one time and a surgeon pulled out a book and looked at something. And after we left the appointment, my dad was like, he doesn't know what he's doing. Whoever heard of a doctor that looks things up in books? So, so I think it's the balance. What Mary had said really resonated with me a lot. I think it does take a lot of humility for us as healthcare providers to be able to acknowledge that patients are the experts in their own lives. I think sometimes it's easy to lose view of that. And and maybe one thing that I'm wondering is, is humility or humble inquiry like domain specific? Are there areas that we can say, well, this is where I can jump in and say, I feel confident in Area X, but here in area Y, I am not so sure. So here's where I'm going to be humble and ask instead of tell. 
Second thing that's going through my mind right now, and I'm looking at chapter six, the summary where Edgar Schein provided us with this Johari model of forces inside us as inhibitors to humble inquiry. And I'm just wondering, it takes a lot of quite a bit of sense of security for a person to be humble. And I'm thinking, what if a person feels really insecure with themselves as a person? It's going to be harder for them to be humble. So kind of reflecting back to me, if I'm not feeling humble and I'm feeling inclined to tell instead of ask, is that a reflection on my own sense of security as a person, as a teacher, as a healthcare provider? I think this is generating a lot of questions for me to try to answer. One thing that made me consider worth saying is that it's not just the things that we verbally say, but it's how everything comes across in our in our behaviors, in our looks and reactions in our face, and also in our silence. And one of the things that really captivates me that Edgar writes about is the curiosity of silence or the silence of curiosity. We're not comfortable with silence. And silence can be a powerful tool that if used well, can elicit people who wouldn't naturally jump in to a conversation. The thing that I thought was interesting was the short circuiting of emotions. And I think that this book brought up another reason to do the reactions phase in debriefing. The reasons to do the reactions phase is one, what Laura Rock calls emotion before cognition, because you know people need to be able to release their emotions so that they can get on a, a level where they're able to actually discuss what you'd like to talk about. And then the second is to get a mini in the moment needs assessment of what's relevant to people so that you know as a debriefer what to talk about or what you can thread into the conversation. What I thought this book did was he talked about you know how we short circuit our emotions. And, and I think the third reason we do the reactions phase is because learners might not know how they're feeling. It influences so much of their judgment. As we're getting close to the end of our discussion, I think we should spend a little bit of time around chapter seven, which is where he focuses on how we can go about developing the attitude of humble inquiry. There are eight suggestions. One is slow down and vary the pace. Two is reflect more and ask yourself humble inquiry questions. Three is become more mindful. Four is try innovating and engaging the artist within you. Five is review and reflect on your own behavior after an event. And six, become sensitive to coordination needs in your own work. And seven, as a leader, build relationships within your team members. And eight, build cultural islands. And all of those suggestions, I I think, are, are very powerful and useful. But the one that I wanted to talk a little bit about was that idea of building cultural islands. And at first glance, you think, well, you know, you just talked about bringing everybody together. And now you're talking about islands, which to me, to the forefront of my mind, separateness. Mm -hmm. But in the book, you just have to remember what he defines as that, which is a situation in which you will attempt to suspend some of the cultural rules pertaining to authority and trust relationships. And to do this, you need to bring your team together in an informal environment, away from the work setting, around more personal activities such as a meal or recreational activity. And I think that's so important. We get so busy and caught up in our schedules and being here and being there that I don't walk into the lunchroom and just sit down and chit chat. But I find that when I do, I end up learning 
new things about what people are doing or what people are struggling with. And it's just sort of an offline place to have a, a conversation that ends up creating more tenderness or more appreciation of each other as human beings. I was going to mention that example that he gave in the book about the Amy Edmondson's research on the cardiac surgical teams that ate lunch as a team rather than with their tribe. The fact that, you know, it was this tiny detail that made a huge difference because of what you're saying. They actually, on a personal level, took the time to have a conversation and get to know each other. You know, deciding that that team is worth your time as much as your tribe is a humble decision. And it probably brings connectedness and, you know, she showed more effectiveness to the team and makes their work together more enjoyable. And I think it taps into some of these behaviors that you're describing from chapter seven. I was thinking about that, about these activities outside the context of the work. Every time I, I have had such, such experience, it has always uh, gathered people together. And I, I think that it, it might be also very important to do to do such things, not only because we have to do it, because it can be a good thing, but just because we feel it. I was going to say that uh, in that last chapter, it seems that the onus is on the boss, the superior, the one who is more senior, to start gathering people to bring himself down to the level, and I on reflecting in my own situation, in my own institution, my department has a pantry. And it's just so funny, whenever the boss steps into the pantry, the conversation just dies. Like everyone becomes very <laughs> uncomfortable and awkward. So it, it does take a, a bit of time and a lot on the part of the boss to come down to the level of the uh, co-workers in order to get it flowing. I'm wondering when I hear you say that, I'm wondering, is there anything you think you could do to bridge that for them so that you help to have him feel more welcome? Maybe it's a, a two-way street. It's true. Certainly, we try to, I mean, the more thoughtful of us would try to engage the boss in conversation or to bring the boss up to speed with what was talking about in the pantry. Hopefully, it's not some gossip about the boss. <laughs> But, uh, oh, yes. yeah. With respect. It's true. It takes uh, two ways. Very often, the feeling is that he or she has no time to do all these things. Yeah, it's sort of the embodiment of the culture of doing and telling, right? Mm. And, and it really does take a lot of energy to shift that. To keep the downtime as downtime rather than use it as right. an opportunity to meet up, to direct more work. Right. I see. Yeah. Mm. I know we're uh, we're approaching the close of our book club session, and I would really love to get takeaways from each and every one of you. Grace, could you lead us off? I think my biggest takeaway is the self-awareness constantly of my level of humility around everyone, um, not just the dean, but the housekeeper that we're working with, but really everyone around, because what resonates with me is work together is about relationships and not so much about accomplishing the task. Self-checks. Sasha? Instead of telling to be the one who would like to be acknowledged, who, the one who will be teached by, by the other one in the conversation. QJ? My takeaway would be to always take effort to develop curiosity and sincerity in asking questions. 70% is non-verbal, so it's not just the way you ask questions, but your manners, your expressions, your entire 
self can be felt by the other person and therefore you have to take extra care. Janice? What I'm taking away is the cultural complexity of it and that to better your organization through humble inquiry, there are so many confounding variables that you have to consider. My takeaway is that this is um, challenging work to do, but it affects so much more than what we do at work. It has an impact in our personal lives, in our day-to-day home life, on an organizational level, on a community level. I want to strive to be more humble and curious in my inquiries and, and to listen. Everybody, I appreciate your time and attention and your sharing and your thoughtful reflections. And thank you so much and have a lovely evening.